You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. If we had to distill down our 258 podcasts on national security, one core theme would emerge, and that is the way that short-term thinking is hurting our national security. So today our guest is Ari Wallach, author of Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors, Our Future Needs, an anecdote for short-termism. So Ari, I feel like you dropped out of the skies when I and America needed this message the most. And that is why I wanted to have you on. And that's why I'm so glad you're here. So thanks for coming in. I really appreciate Uh, it. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here in conversation with you. It's also difficult to know where to start because to me, this is sort of an iconic book. Now, I am not sure that you meant to write a book about national security and the importance of restoring unity in the United States, but I feel like that's a little bit of what has happened here. Yeah, I mean, look, there's. I talk about this in the, in the beginning of the book. My father fought with the the Jewish underground in Poland in World War II as a teenager, which is rare because of my age. He had me later in life. So most folks who are kind of first generation Holocaust survivors, especially where a parent fought with the underground, those are grandparents, right? Or they're much older than me. So I grew up in a home that talked about security and war and national security. My mother, who was an artist, trained under Buckminster Fuller, this kind of futurist systems thinker that did work with the US Navy, but was really seen as kind of this forward-thinking human that was really trying to help humanity move forward. Even though this book you know, is not necessarily gonna be you know, shelved under national security, I was raised thinking in the kind of a systems-based way around these major issues. At the same time, in college, what what left kind of a huge, huge impact on my thinking, and this is the first time I've actually said this to to anyone, was George Cannon's long telegram, right? This is February 1946, and it's thinking, and, you know, they asked for a very simple response from him, what came back was this, you know, I think 5,000 word essay on the Soviet Union, how it's thinking, what will and will not happen over the next several decades. And we can argue on another podcast, the impact, the pros and cons of that telegram, but very much in my thinking, even though it's focused on short-termism and how it impacts homo sapiens kind of writ large, national security and thinking about kind of peace and conflict, very much part of kind of my DNA. And so in writing the book, even though I kind of make it kind of much more personal and much more kind of mindset focused, national security and kind of thinking about the country we want and the country that we need to kind of make it through what I call this intertidal period was very much in my mind while writing this book. Yeah, I think your timing is perfect, actually. It, it seems to come at a time when we really don't get it. Let's take a moment to do what we don't often do as Americans, but let's start with sort of ancient guidance and warnings to future generations about the hazards of short-term thinking. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of quotes throughout the book where I reference, you know, the Iroquois Confederacy, seventh generation thinking, and also from different kind of wisdom traditions. And part of that, and also I talk about the, the fall of the Roman Empire and what that leads to in terms of the Middle Ages. And what happens when we are so focused on the short-term moment, specifically, obviously, in our own daily lives, but at a systems-level approach, what that does 
to empires and nation states or proto-nation states. Even when we look at like Aztec and Mayan empires, we consistently see when they overextend, be it food supply or on population or in their conflict making, this more often than not leads to the end of these empires. And look, there's something to be said for creative destruction, some rise, some fall. There's a, you know, Thucydides trap, hegemonic upheaval and whatnot. That being said, at this point in time, the role of the nation state, specifically, I think the U.S. is of vital importance. So we have to look at history to see what leads us to points of both flourishing and collapse. And it's, you know, it's, I've been talking to a lot of folks and they say they're surprised how much kind of history is in a book about the future. And so much of Longpath is recognizing that, you know, as my dad used to say, you know, my dad who fought in World War II as a teenager was a Nazi hunter after the war. He used to say, look, remember the future started yesterday, right? This, this idea that what we are on, whatever that kind of path dependency on either in our own individual lives, in our careers, or as countries, or as a species, it doesn't start today. It started generations ago. Many, many things I talk about in the book it's also a surprise to folks is I, I, I go 150,000, 200,000 years back because to me, how we're hardwired at, let's say the amygdala or the, you know, the limbic level, as well as how we, the, you know, the software, which is basically culture, how all that manifests in our decision-making apparatus, be it in our living rooms and our family rooms and our classrooms, or even in the situation room is really based on very deep historical examples and trends and ways of how we are today. So it's unbelievably important that we kind of look to the past to have a really good idea about where we are right now and to learn lessons so we don't repeat things, which I hate to say it more often than not, we kind of keep repeating these mistakes. I think part of that is just because we're not looking to our kind of historical antecedents to understand how it is we got to this point so we don't keep repeating these same, same patterns. Your reference to hegemonic upheaval is interesting to me because, you know, there was recently a statement by one of the leaders in Germany that they still rely on the United States for protection. And I see us at this point as remaining this global leader that we have been for the past, you know, 70 odd years. You know, everybody's trying to draw us into conflicts, whether it's the, you know, the British draw us into World War II and the Nazis keep us out through their social media campaigns of the time and all the other things that have occurred in terms of our conflicts or the selling of the Iraq war to the American people as some sort of, you know, retribution against what had occurred on 9-11 and any of these things. Hegemonic upheaval does follow periods of time like the one that we're in right now, where poor decisions, as you just mentioned, were made about conflicts. We're standing at a moment right now where we're looking at a Ukraine war and, you know, the CEO, I believe, of General Dynamics has had to contact DOD and has had to speak publicly about her concern that we're not even imagining the length that this war could extend. If I also look at what we're doing right now by disagreeing with one another and breaking into these idea silos, if Russ Feingold is correct, headed toward another constitutional Congress, I think we're at real risk of what you're describing are these sort of seismic events in history. But what I also think is interesting about your book is sort of the anecdote that you're suggesting here is one that I think is generally very hard for Americans to sort of grasp and use as any mechanism for change. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. What I wrestle with in the book, and I alluded to this earlier, is kind of, you know, there's a famous book by Marshall Goldsmith, kind of a CEO whisperer and coach, and it's called, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it's for new CEOs. But I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of America, like what got us here won't get us there. And that means two things to me, or I pull two things from that. One, what worked to get us to this point isn't going to necessarily work because we are no longer in a kind of steady state environment. And obviously by that, moving obviously into a multipolar world, you know, we we had this kind of end of history fallacy. But what's interesting about that is uh, Gilbert at, at Harvard talks about an, a, a similar kind of fallacy, his kind of end of history fallacy, which is that humans, and I'll extrapolate even say societies, tend to think they're at the kind of the end all be all of in terms of development and where they're going to be at. And like, they've kind of figured it out. And we, and we do this as humans all the time, but he runs a kind of an experiment where he says, very simple one. He goes, well, think about your favorite song 10 years ago. Did you think there would be, you'd have another favorite song? You like, no, of course not. And then think about 10 years from now, will, will today's favorite song be your favorite? Of course not. But we tend to think we live in this steady state environment and it's far from it. At a global national security level, we're very far from it. I think the, the biggest issue right now, coupled with everything, obviously, I, I, there's, there's three things, right? There's bioengineering, there's artificial intelligence, I'll put quantum in there as well, and there's climate change. So these are three radically shifting megatrends that take us out of a steady state environment. Couple that with social media or social technologies that are unbelievably powerful in terms of their ability to kind of manipulate individuals and societies And we see that what is going to probably be the biggest issue moving forward from a national security perspective is if we don't actually think about national security in a beyond a Westphalian way, right? So when we actually, I was was talking to some educators for the book, and I was thinking about K through 12 education specifically, not not in STEM, because that's, you know, trust me, I'm all for STEM, but in the very simple thing of critical thinking and kind of source evaluations, things, you know, things that you learn pretty early, let's say just even in the IC, we don't have that in education. What ends up happening is we end up taking the bait as a population and as a people. And as we come into these kind of hegemonic rising, falling traps that are being laid in front of us, we are more likely to kind of fall into them because we are not critically evaluating the operating environment and understanding that kind of the the global theater of operations has dramatically changed in the past 50 years. And so long path is not a noun. It's, it's very much a verb, but in the noun sense, you know, too long path. But in a sense, the book is about long path as an applied mindset. What I realized was I didn't want to write a book about this is going to be the future because there's a lot of books like that. And I am not that kind of classic futurist where it's going to be this, that, or the other. And th- this is the long term. What I want to do was find a way to allow people to think differently in a kind of in a critical thinking stance, both around external trends and internal trends, if you will, so that in this new theater of operations, they would be able to effectively navigate this very specific moment, what I call an intertidal in the book, which is kind of the old ways of doing things are no longer working. We see that across the board, the new rules are yet to be written. So how do we navigate this intertidal? The book is about the mindset we need to navigate that. And so the antidote to short-termism is, as cliche as it sounds, is to think differently. And in this way, it's to think critically. And it's it's literally in the title, which, you know, that's, that's the big giveaway. Becoming the great ancestors, our future needs. Already, 
within reading the title, one should already start to have a kind of temporal dislocation and realize that this kind of end of history fallacy, that it's not just about them. They're not at the tail end of something, but they're actually in the middle of something. And hundreds, if not thousands of years from now, folks will look back and say, were the decisions made in the early part of the 21st century allowing for more human flourishing or less human flourishing? The emphasis here is how to navigate this moment. You know, I hope, I would like to believe that some of the CEOs of tech companies would share these concerns and share this view, this Velschenschone, that approaching things from the long term would be better because I think that's important. Before we get into some of the solutions to this, let's talk about how our culture has shifted. I'll give you my personal and probably not the best, but my own observations which is that I feel that we have shifted to sort of a national surf class to use sort of an ancient manner metaphor, and maybe to a world surf class where we're enslaved by short-term thinking. I've heard, like recently I heard Wynton Marsalis of all people say, Hmm. the greatest hustle is to get people in the bottom to fight each other because then the people at the top retain control. So what we have right now is we have a gig economy where people aren't necessarily attached to a place of employment or culture. We have a large number of people who are living paycheck to paycheck. We have a capitalism system that underpins our entire economy, which requires a return on investment, shareholder value, but does not require the communities in which corporations are in any way served by whatever it is that they're doing. And where you mentioned something very important, which is that they must grow, they must show growth Mm -hmm. to shareholders, but they don't have to invest in individuals or employees. So I feel this is where we are. And then layer on top of that is this idea that people are easily influenced by social media and that it's pervasive. And I think the latest statistic horrifyingly was that people are looking at as many as 98 hours of TikTok streaming videos just during the work week. I mean, that's really shocking that we have arrived at this point. Where do you see us right now, firstly? <laughs> yeah, I, I do see us here in many ways. I, I'm going to go in reverse order. You know, it's interesting. A lot of times I hear the TikTok statistic, right? How much time folks are on TikTok? I, I have two teenage daughters and a nine-year-old son. They are not on social media, mostly because I've worked with a couple of these companies. So I, I know, and most of my friends who work at social media companies who have kids my age do not allow their kids on their own platforms. So let's kind of start there. When it comes to how much time people are spending on TikTok during the work week, and I hear the statistic often, what I start to think about is why? Where are we as a society that, you know, they call it quiet quitting or whatnot. It's obviously post-COVID and, and people's disenchantment with their work. The loss of purpose and meaning is the largest underreported story of this part of the 21st century. In the book, I trace that back, surprisingly or not, depending on how well you know me, to the erosion and kind of eradication, and I'm going to put this in scare quotes, of God. Now, don't don't freak out. I'm not advocating for the end of church to say what it is. There is a part of our species, these advanced primates, homo sapiens, that for multiple reasons, Marty Seligman talks about this, the professor, he calls us homo prospectus. What separates us from other mammals is we do two things extremely well. We can think about the future, we can prospect, and we cooperate to allow those things to happen. Part of the kind of spin-off of that process is in that storytelling cooperation, 
is this idea of a larger purpose or meaning that allows us to do difficult things. Again, I won't bore you with the history lesson on the creation of God when we move from hunter-gatherer to agricultural. You can read that in the book. But what ends up happening is in a society, in an American society, where we have lost a bigger vision, what I in the book call a telos, that's ultimate aim, goal, or purpose. I talk about you know, Odysseus and you know, looking for Ithaca, something bigger than himself, where we have lost that meaning and purpose. And you, know, you can go back to Manifest Destiny, you know, the Cold War, where we've now lost that. And it's a consumer-based capitalism culture that is focused on kind of endless growth on a finite planet. We are finding people are not only kind of checking out, but checking into algorithmic social technologies that are having them basically idle their day away in a way that still gives them a sense of a dopamine rush because there's no longer that larger purpose of meaning. Now, I'm not saying we need to fill that back up with God and with religion, but we need to think about what is a larger purpose. A great corollary is on the other, well, I'm on, I'm on the East Coast now, but I was raised on the West Coast. So across the Great Ocean, across the Pacific, when we look at China, for instance, and this larger, and it's a whole other podcast too on this, but when we look at least from a kind of neo-Confucian model of identity and purpose, and the fact that they're thinking already about the year 2049, and we can barely think about a week from now, we start to understand the implications of short-term thinking, both on the individual level and loss of identity and, and purpose, and at the macro level, how we start to have a kind of national security apparatus and a way of being highly reactive. That's the other side of short-termism is you're highly reactive. You're no longer proactive and seeking something. I'm not agreeing with the China model, but what I'm saying is there's a purpose and intent there that we no longer have because we are trying to remain a hegemonic power as opposed to doing in a kind of totopolian sense, something much bigger. And that leads us to this point. So I, you are reading it correctly, but I, I still have hope. This book was written from a sense of kind of radical hope towards what we can do and how we can start to solve some of these problems. But you're correct, I believe, in your assessment of where we are as a country, if, if not a world right now. A lot of people have looked at a Supreme Court decision that basically said companies, I'm going to just distill it down, companies are people, and that they can donate to political campaigns, more mm -hmm. or less unfettered, you know, within certain confines. But one of the things that I think could change to your point about optimism is that we could rest away from some of these corporations their ability to have outsized political influence. And, and I'll give you my response. And I thought a lot about this since I read your book. And I will tell you, your book has had a profound effect on me personally. And I would commend it highly to all of our listeners. I think it's very important to read. I think it's really important to ponder afterwards. But right now I see a couple of areas of potential hope, to your point. One of them is that we currently have two-year election cycles. They cost millions of dollars. That means you start running for election before you've even, even gotten elected for your current position. So that strikes me as one. You're welcome to shoot any of these down. And I, I'm going to gather you've thought of these and more, but I try to think of practical solutions. One of the other things is all of these companies, such as, for example, social media companies like Meta or Facebook, as, as they used to be known, you know, they obviously want people to click and buy, buy, buy. If you're ExxonMobil, you want people to ignore existential threat of climate change. And these are the companies who are paying and funding our politicians. Now, 
they're politicians that enact laws and they also hold the purse strings. So in terms of any legislating any change, it seems to me that if we could find a way to turn this ship around, we could at least start. So I offer that as one thought because what I like to do with theoretical directions is take them and see, could we apply them in any sort of smaller and direct way to the way that we're doing business in this country, for example, that might ultimately benefit our focus on the long path as opposed to short-termism. I, I throw that out to you and I wonder, and you're free to roll your eyes, uh, yeah. but I'm trying to figure out, <laughs> I, I try to take things like this that can really keep you up at night, recognizing that unless we embrace what you're saying here, I mean, we're not going to have a habitable planet. Let me just put that out there. We need to embrace what it is that you are saying here. How on a smaller level can we make people understand or reform sort of the things that might put us on the right path? The precursor question to your comment and question takes me back to Buckminster Fuller, who was asked during World War II by the U.S. Navy to help them with a very big problem, which was the ships were getting larger and therefore, you know, the, the, the rudders had to get larger. And the problem was the hydraulics weren't big enough to steer these giant ships and these giant rudders. So he came up with a counterintuitive idea, which was this thing called a trim tab. And a trim tab is a small, you know, it could be a four or five inch piece of metal at the end of a rudder. And so all you really have to do is turn that four to five inch small piece of metal at the end of the rudder into the countervailing pressure force. And it will actually, if you lock it into place, it will swing the rudder around. Now, what that means is you actually turn the trim tab into the opposite direction you want to go because then it flips the rudder. Buckminster Fuller believed in this idea of a trim tab, this idea of small action, great effect, sage, so much that on his tombstone, that, you know, his name and birth and death year. And it said, call me trim tab. He literally thought of himself as a trim tab. And so your, your point is taken that, well, the audience for this podcast, I think is actually slightly different than what I'm about to normally, because what I normally say is not all of us are in these rooms where we can make these huge decisions. But I think with your podcast listeners, those folks actually are in those rooms who can, who can help make those big decisions. And so the question becomes, how do you think of yourself as a trim tab and the key to the trim tab is you're going into the prevailing pressure system to create change. And you have to give yourself, if you want to turn these quarter mile long ships, you have to give yourself enough room now the, or time as it were. And yes, we don't have that much time on a lot of these issues. So when it comes to kind of corporate capture of politics, which is kind of where you started, what I start to think about are what are these trim tabs? Now, some of them, especially you know, for the campaign or, or lawyers or anyone listening, You'll love some of these, like ranked choice voting. It's kind of like the traffic circle of politics, right? Like no one wants traffic circles because they think no Americans will understand it, but they work really well. Uh, ranked choice voting is the same way because what it does is it kind of pushes out the extremes because you're ranking, well, if my person in number one doesn't get it, I want my vote to go to number two. So what it does is it pushes folks towards the middle to come up with kind of moderate, more pragmatic, more long-term thinking policy in general because you're no longer at the edges because when you're at the edges, you're more often than not campaigning, not towards folks' prefrontal cortex, but towards their amygdala. They're like their immediate kind of primitive mind who needs these immediate quick hits so they can feel good. It's the same thing social media companies do. So I think of ranked choice voting. I think of B Corps, which are public benefit corporations. Uh, I think about these seemingly small things that you could do at a, at a, let's say, at a business or a practical or a policy level. What the book then goes into, not to bring it back to the book, but it's, this is a, a strong example of it, is 
I realized a lot of the work that I was doing my 20 plus years was for transnational corporations. A lot of the ones who are influencing regulations and policies to their benefit and their benefit in the moment, but not necessarily connected to a specific place, right? So they thought of their shareholders, but they wouldn't think of their stakeholders, which is more than just the people who own the the stock. And so my counter to that in the book is the transnational, not counter, but it made me, what came up with this concept of transgenerational empathy, which is thinking about different generations through a kind of empathic lens, really as stakeholders in whatever that process is or that policy. And so I think when we look at Gen Z, I work with a lot of different companies and government agencies and groups and whatnot around the world. They're looking at the next generation who's taking these things very, very seriously. And they're realizing that the folks that are making decisions at a policy, budgetary, continuing resolution level tend to be in their 70s or 80s and won't be around for the ramifications of their decisions. And they're now looking for new leadership and new ways of implementing policies and living, be it, you know, California's move to full EV by 2035 that will help them sustain and be part of a livable planet that has a kind of flourishing democracy and civil society, as opposed to the folks who are at the highest levels of leadership within corporations or within government for that matter, even in civil society sometimes, who are moving about their decision-making matrix through a very short-termistic lens. That sounds good. And I do see that, I have to admit, with the Gen Z crowd. And I do think that they're thinking ahead and are irate, quite frankly, about where we find ourselves on climate, but they're not holding the power in the purse strings yet. And unfortunately, they do have to run for office. I hope then, you know, I'd like to see a big shift. You make another point, though, and that is with Gen Z and with all of us, there would still have to be some sort of glue that holds us together. In the past, it's been to a degree a lingua franca, that we all understood things as they were reported to us in national news. We had a common history, which we understood. And I I do understand that it was largely the history told uh, by and about white men, often slaveholding men. And I understand all of that. There were also many wonderful things that we did in terms of being a great experiment in democracy. But I think at this point... We've reached, I think, a lack of national unity, which makes it very hard. And I say not just a lack of national unity, a lack of global unity. I think that there was a a moment after the Ukraine war broke out when we saw how quickly Western countries would come together. They're paying a lot of lip service all the time, right up until the moment when everybody agreed to be unified against a common enemy. I do feel that having a common enemy or a crisis is often how we see this sort of hegemonic upheaval, this massive change. I do wonder if we're at that point. It's interesting. A very influential book on me very early on, not one of the more well-known books by this author, by Kurt Vonnegut, was Sirens of Titan. And a subplot of the book is this kind of industrialist who kidnaps earthlings, brings them to Mars, it's sci-fi and it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, and creates the Martian army. Why? So they will go back and invade Earth and create a common enemy to unify the planet, right? But he only gives these this Martian army like pea shooters, so they can't harm anyone. It's a very, it's Kurt Vonnegut Jr., right? But I read this very, very, very early on, I think I was in high school. It kind of spoke to this need, and it the power of an enemy to provide purpose and meaning and unity is 
baked into our hardwiring that goes back again to hundreds of thousands of years. The question now is, and this is a kind of a, kind of a subplot in the book, is recognizing, and this is not meant to be, I, I'm doing this from a neuroscience level, not from a new age level, but that kind of common enemy now is very much thinking about the parts of us that are hardwired that need this common enemy to pursue a larger purpose, this kind of internal voice and dialogue that we either have as individuals and to be honest, as a nation, how do we recognize this, work with it and work through it into something much, much bigger, right? This is part of how you navigate this intertidal moment is to figure out that, you know, it's, it's, it's so cliche, you know, I, we've met the enemy and then, you know, the enemy is us, but there is a point in time, I, I would like to think in any highly intelligent species and by the only one I can think of at this point is us and maybe the dolphins, but it's really just us, where we have to recognize and say the only thing that's actually stopping us from feeding and clothing and educating and taking care of everyone's basic needs on the planet is just us. There's no longer kind of some larger entity that we can, yes, I can point to the Westphalian system and a bunch of things that prevent that. Part of the attempt of this book is to have a recognition of that in such a way where we can think about how do we create policies and work with this so-so hardwired system called, you know, the central nervous system of homo sapiens, which was really good. It got us here, but it won't get us further in such a way that allows us to meet the maximum needs of as many people in this current moment that doesn't take away from future generations. That's the notion and the idea of the book. And look, the, the book is, it's interesting. The feedback I'm getting, I'm getting it from teachers, parents, CEOs, folks at the UN, some IC friends of mine are like, oh, I never thought about that. The way to think about the future is thinking about A, my daily actions and B, how do I walk about and behave in the world in such a way that will have long-term beneficial consequences and in a positive way for future generations? Because when I start thinking that way, I start making very different decisions. That, that was the kind of the, the purpose of it in a certain way is to provide this mindset and a kind of a mindset shift that can allow for a larger glue that is not necessarily in the, in the nationalistic or jingoistic sense. The glue here, the larger purpose is acting on behalf of future generations of humans. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. I think one of the things that we've lost sight of is early childhood education and the teaching of critical thinking. In the United States, the way that has manifested was often the teaching of civics and the understanding of our government and our rights you know, as early as the first grade. Civics education was really stopped in earnest in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and then it's now almost completely gone in the United States. And part of that was because we were looking at long-term trends regarding technology and the need to have a different workforce that could do things like writing code. And so the emphasis went to STEM education and a lot of the critical thinking was lost. With respect to STEM education, I mean, you can be a person who doesn't have a particularly socially developed mind, and you can be excellent at it, really good at it. I'm wondering, because we've reached a point where we recognize we have an addicted population, I mean, the new evidence shows that our brains get a pop of dopamine, for example, when we're on social media. We do seem to be increasingly addicted to anger, at least a lot of people in the population are. I'm wondering, because you mentioned the brain, I'm looking at things like early childhood education and the teaching of civics. And I'm wondering if things like this could be helpful toward realizing the vision that you have, I think, in this book. 
I was involved, no surprise, after 2016's election cycle in, in rethinking a lot of things. And one of them was civics education in America and working with a bunch of foundations on how to rethink it. And one of the things that I learned that was really interesting was civics through the 1950s and even into the early 1960s was in many ways sponsored by big business, by corporate America, by the chamber of all these folks. Part of what ended up happening was as we learned about civics and our rights and amendments and all these things, part of what that led to was the rapid rise in anti-war protest and sentiment and this new sense of agency, really. So if you think about the 1950s as very kind of perpetuation of like the kind of the normative way of doing things, and all of a sudden comes this kind of radical 60s, there was a segment within the community that was sponsoring civic education that felt that they went too far in teaching civics, that now folks saw that they really could change the government and they could actually make a difference and they could have agency. And that led to too much protest, right? And so there was a kind of a pullback from it. That was one of the things that I learned in this you know, post-2016 moment was kind of where civics education went. So I think, yes, it was replaced somewhat from with STEM, but it was also kind of a reaction of what, quote unquote, too much civics can give. Look, I touched on this earlier. We have not fully wrapped our head around the fact at the highest levels that the moment we are moving into in terms of work, specifically in America, but in the developed economies, if not globally, and its interface with artificial intelligence or machine learning mixed in with a certain level of kind of quantum, which is more of a speed thing than anything else, is going to severely dislocate not only blue collar, but white collar in a way that we have not fully really wrapped our head around. So when I think about civics education and critical thinking and creative thinking and lateral thinking and systems thinking as not only what is going to help people, quote unquote, stay employed for what jobs there will be left, but in a way that will provide meaning and purpose to something bigger than just the meaning and purpose they get from their job, which is Americans and a kind of Protestant work ethic nation, how we derive our sense of meaning and purpose is going to be unbelievably important. Look, from a national security perspective, what's going to get us, if you will, is going to be all coming from the inside because we're so focused looking over the walls that we don't realize the kind of hollowing out of the moral, social, and spiritual core of our own population in many ways because of the displacement that technology will bring. And so I think these things around education, not only externally, like we've talked about civics and political science and the way the quote unquote world works, but also to what you alluded to very quickly in the beginning, how we work, how humans work, how the brains work. You know, it's a, my kids must, I feel bad for them, but a lot of dinners are spent talking about very much neuroscience, like why they'll tell me what happened at school. And I'll say, well, here's why that happened. Here's what we've learned from anthropology or evolutionary biology, why you guys got into that fight, what that meant about resource allocation at the lunch table. So I, I make for a very boring father in that way. But I think these are the things that we're going to have to learn if we want to push through and navigate this intertidal moment, because the change, and again, as a, as a futurist, I'm not predictive, but what I can tell you, scanning, looking at the megatrends, the changes that we're about to go through as a nation, and we can even talk about borders in a second, are going to be so profound over the next one, two, and three decades that our education system is woefully inadequate because we are still on a kind of industrialized model where what we should be working with is helping kids 
again, around civics, around governance, around conflict resolution, around these much larger ways of interacting with one another, as opposed to things that you can know because you call out to your, I won't, I won't say the, the name of the device because I have one here and then she'll start talking back to me and it'll be awkward in the podcast, but you can ask any questions you want to the cloud and you get those back, yet we're still educating as if though we're moving to the factory floor. So that's from a national security perspective, that's how I think about these issues and how little we're actually thinking about in writ large. It's interesting, you raised something that we haven't talked about in previous podcasts, but Senator Pichai would agree with you. And that is that given where we are with quantum computing, which will inevitably become a reality in probably the nearer future than we all imagine, there will be a time when there'll be mass unemployment isn't even the right term, that many people will not find that they are employed by anyone else, that once this happens, that could cause you know, tremendous unrest. Now, your separate society-changing issue is the potential for mass migration on a scale that no agencies can manage, no borders can handle. And that was mentioned in the National Intelligence Estimate for Climate, which talked about that as one of the inevitable and coming hazards of a warming planet, that there will be famine. And we're seeing it this year. You know, there, the food supply out of the United States has dropped significantly. Points in time in California, they grew more rice than they did entire all of China. And that's not happening right now. But at some point, this will force people. And think of what you would do, right, for your own children if there was a situation which you had no food and no way to survive where you were living, you would certainly take your family and go to higher ground, find a place where you could survive. But this could happen on a scale of millions of people a week. And we don't have anything to manage that. I think one of the things that you raise, and I don't really see us thinking about this as an inevitability. I think it's mentioned in passing as something that might happen if we don't get a handle on climate. And we're not getting a handle on climate as of today. So I wonder how we should think of these massive events and how much they should be a part of the national dialogue, not to panic Americans, who I think are susceptible to panic, even widespread panic, but to get people thinking and to try to come up with answers to this while we can. So I was, I think I can say this, I don't know. So I was a volunteer on on a Biden transition group, working group. And I wrote kind of a memo advocating for an office of the future and for kind of a chief futurist in the U.S. government, but on the executive side. And for various reasons, it it wasn't for me, but it just, it didn't necessarily go forward or whatever. But baked into that memo that I wrote was two things. One, kind of the solution side of it, which, which you just touched on around kind of migration and food and work and a whole host of things. The other part that was in there was kind of the communication side of it is what this person would do. So I think about, you know, say what you will. And I know people, I just saw people have issues with Fauci or this or that, like, or even Governor Cuomo in New York during COVID, there was something to be said about the ability and the power of individuals calmly explaining the situation, whether you agree with them or not, and saying, here's how it's going. Here's what we're doing. Here's what's coming next. And in this office of the future, as I saw it, that would be the role of this individual or individuals or committee to kind of explain these larger megatrends that are coming. You know, we're not on the Titanic and we're not, we're not going to slam into the iceberg. But what I can tell you is we're going to touch it. And the question is, how bad does that scrape happen, right? Does it take us to the ocean floor or do a few decks get damaged, but we can move people in time? I could go take this metaphor forever. That's kind of where we are. 
And again, you'll read about this in the book. I, I was working for the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, out of Geneva, and we were doing a bunch of foresight innovation work for them for, for years and looking at the ability for countries to manage internally displaced people around climate change, right? So we often think about climate refugees, 500 million, a billion on the move. One of the things I kept bringing up is what happens, a what-if scenario, we start to have issues, which we're already seeing, in the Southwest of the United States. So it's not about people from Central America coming to the US and US going to Canada. We That makes for good movies and that may come to fruition. But I was just trying to say like, what would happen in the US if the Southwest and the Colorado River and we hit the issues that we're looking at, we're getting closer to hitting, we have to move chunks of the US population up into the Midwest. Are we prepared for that? What does that look like? What does the built infrastructure look like for that? And I raised that issue in a unnamed meeting at a think tank in Washington, and everyone kind of nodded that that's yes, yes, that could totally happen. Yes, we should think about that. And I said, well, what, what should we say about this? What can we do about this? And everyone said the same thing. We're not going to say anything. We could never say anything. That people will panic, they'll freak out. The real estate sector will collapse in LA. And I said, no, no, no. We have to, someone has to start acting like the grown-ups in the room both on the policy level, but also on being straight with people about the things that we're dealing with. I get the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and I open it up on the weekends, and I see these luxury condos for buildings that haven't even been made yet. So it's like a prospectus, right? Three, $4 million condos in South Beach in Miami. And I think to myself, you know, if I was a lawyer, like I would just be thinking, I'd already start the lot. Like, how can you do that when we have an idea where these things are going to go? But it's a metaphor for so many other issues that we're not dealing with, that we're not taking point of view that is grown up and mature about where these issues are going with food, with land, and with human migration. And at some point, we have to realize as a country, it is going to be detrimental to our long-term sovereignty to effectively govern our population, which by the way, in 2050 was projected to be 450 million people. If we don't start leveling with folks, we're going to get to a point where the blowback, remember, remember Charles Johnson and the blowback after 9-11? We're going to start seeing blowback internally. And by the way, I think a rally of a former president that I just saw a couple of days ago made me think, oh, this is what things looked like in other parts of the world in the 1930s or in other parts in other times where there starts to be blowback because the government is no longer taking care of these larger needs of folks and just kind of steamrolling them because no one is willing to kind of step up and be the adult in the room. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.